So this bolt of lightning shot across the universe and inspired me with the idea that we have to do a podcast. And that's what I wanted to tell you. We should do a podcast. Okay, bye. Oh, uh, welcome to Feature Creep, <gasps> colon. <laughs> ah, built-in microwave, semicolon. We did it. Did we, um, though? I mean, do I even, do we know what we're doing? Carrot cake. Carrot cake, yeah. So um, you might ask where carrot cake and design come together. So mm-hmm. I, I had um, this funny sort of thing happened where yesterday I just so I'd been I've been trying to like kind of cut down on sugar and like try to you know get get my shit together around that concept of like not eating as much of it yeah and uh it's going okay but um setting that aside like I did pretty great this week and I like really kind of focused on like eating other things and not like insane like no sugar no sweet things like sort Mm -hmm. of like high fat high high protein diet or anything like that just sort of like not eating like a gallon of ice cream in a week or something (laughs) like that you know what I mean like trying to (laughs) kind of like you know find other things to do with my time than like fill my you know send myself into a sugar coma when I have when I wish to uh, sort of self-medicate, so to speak. Right. Um, So doing great. But then yesterday, last night, I I had this like major craving for carrot cake. And uh, I texted my partner and I was like, (laughs) you know, fully joking. I would never, I would never say this uh, with any real meaning. I was like, why aren't you, it was like, you know, nine o'clock at night and, you know, she, we don't live together and she lives um, about 10 minutes away and I was like and and has other obligations so it's like there's no way she could do any of this a ridiculous yeah. request I was like hey why where why aren't you making me a carrot cake and bringing it over as soon as possible I'd be willing to wait up to an hour for this um, <laughs> so like obviously the hyperbole was yes. supposed to indicate that it was a joke <laughs> yeah I was like and to be clear I want the good <laughs> carrot cake you know the one there you make the icing with the cream cheese like the really good cream cheese and it's like not too sugary it's just right. um you know yeah, it's a foil for that it's, for the crumb of the cake exactly yeah. yeah yes exactly that's a perfect use of that word it's a foil for the crumb of the cake um anyway so that went over mm-hmm. uh, appropriate she was like you chose the wrong woman yeah. like you know faux faux <laughs> battle right like i was like <laughs> yeah clearly <laughs> If I truly thought that was, if I truly thought that was the, uh, the merit of a good relationship, I think I'd be in trouble. Um, but I'd be inclined to say something to you like, well, I already made the cake and I'm just <laughs> finishing it now. So you're a little late on that. Right. Um, if you really wanted carrot cake. You should have got here earlier. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, I had my, I had my issues with craving for carrot cake. Uh, so then, uh, before bed, I was like kind of cruising through some um i've been i've been kind of really focused on playing dungeons and dragons lately or or uh we've been having fun playing with uh, my group of friends of mine and so i've been like kind of reading up more about it and like i it's it's a fun hobby of mine and so i was watching some videos on youtube and coincidentally uh one of the videos was about um 
he makes this great analogy of how so like let me go a little more backer but he basically makes a carrot cake analogy this this youtuber i think his name is uh his youtube channel is dungeon masterpiece which i love because his whole premise like he talks about dungeons and dragons content and if that's not for you doesn't matter um that's not like the (laughs) emphasis of this this story but the channel aesthetic speaking of design is great yeah it's set up like that sort of like do you remember masterpiece theater like i think it's still going on Mm -hmm. on pbs but that kind of Mm -hmm. setup where somebody sort of sits in a library with like a nice suit on and it's like very kind of like um, in a brandy and a chair yeah and a chair next to a fire exactly yeah so he's got that kind of aesthetic of like wearing a nice suit and a tie and he's got like an old globe next to him and and books yeah. behind him except they're all these like dungeons and dragons books which is great like the whole thing it just has this great he's like sitting in like a um you know kind of like an easy chair that you would find in a like a library or a study or whatever yeah. with you know you expect like a, a dimly lit with a pipe or whatever um yes it's super great so uh Anyway, that's the aesthetic, but he makes this carrot cake analogy. So let me get to that. But first, let me tell you about um, there's this thing going on in Dungeons and Dragons that people are like really like up in arms about because um, it's become very popular recently. Like in the lab, I think a lot of it, I think, has to do with Stranger Things making it kind of more Mm. making you know a new generation more aware of it plus uh you know the combination of things like covid putting people in restriction like social restrictions so more and more people are looking for ways to connect with other people and it's certainly a great way to do it and if you have friends who play and you haven't i recommend you know giving it a shot um i will I I do want to emphasize that like Dungeons and Dragons may have been like the first kind of original popular tabletop role playing game. Yeah. But it is by far not the best in my opinion. And I think lots of people's opinions. Um, It's just kind of the most popular. And so did you ever watch Harmon Quest? um, I watched a little bit of it. I actually find it hard to watch other people play because Ah. I find it. um, It's not engaging enough for me. Like I Mm -hmm. like I enjoy playing. But I don't like watching other people play. It's like I might watch some highlight clips of it or whatever. But I just find it um, it's hard for me to feel very invested in it. Whereas like if I'm I'm there at the table playing, then I feel more invested in the game. And I also know the people. So like it's a social encounter. Um, I do. I that has Dan Harmon, though. Right. Like that's the. Yes. And I have like kind of a, you know, I have a severe weakness for like horrible asshole misogynist (laughs) creators. Right. Right. Like uh, so, I mean, I think Dan Harmon kind of falls in that category. Maybe he's not as I I don't think he hates women. He just doesn't treat them very well, perhaps. Uh, That's Um, fair. Yeah. I don't I don't know him well enough. I mean, I my most of the body of his work that I'm most familiar with is the. uh, Rick and Morty stuff but yeah that's a, like newer yeah. when he did Harmon Quest it was when he was I think married to Aaron his oh. for now former wife gotcha and like they did a documentary about when he went on tour called Harmon Town okay which is like super wonderful but like I don't know he like at the time when they filmed it you kind of got this behind the scenes look at this person who like is difficult to work with because he has these really specific ideas about how he wants things and he's also kind of an alcoholic and also like he's really, <laughs> yeah. you know what I mean like yes. just he's like yeah. a difficult person which uh-huh. I 
like I I'm around those people a lot. So right, I, right. I I I'm not I'm not like an apologist for Dan Harmon's bad behavior or saying that I condone it. I'm just saying right. like I it's it's not uncommon. I mean, but I'll, anyway, apo- I'll apologize like, for it. I'm very sorry that he did those things. Right. Thank <laughs> the, you. But that's not what um, an apologist is apparently. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, go on. That's so funny because that's what the fucking English language, right? Man. Shouldn't it be like, like an excusist or like a not? justifier or like yes. I don't know. Anyway, go on. Yes, there it, there are way better, closer words to what it is than right. apologist. Yeah. Right. So yeah, I don't know. I I I. You know that I have a weakness for documentaries mm-hmm. and also like shitty male creators at yep. times. And so like, I don't know. I just, I found this sort of like insight into his personal turmoil. Mm-hmm. Like if, like if you accept the, the premise that like, oh, you know, it's terrible to be around somebody like that, but it's even worse to be somebody <laughs> yes, like that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Absolutely. You know, I, yep. But anyway, I think his shit's really funny. Like sure, I thought yeah. Community was great. I think Rick and Morty's great. Although like every time he does the like weird Rick burping voice, I'm uh, just like, oh uh-huh. God, like I can't watch the show because I totally get like barfy water brash from it. Like uh-huh. sympathetic. You're like, oh. I, it makes me want to barf listening <laughs> yeah. to it. Don't even need to get into that. <laughs> oh, yeah. God. So I'll, while the show is brilliant, I haven't seen that much of it. Um, um yeah, I yeah, I am familiar. So I, with it, my though. exposure yeah. to tabletop games is largely through Harmon, uh, Dan Harmon's like Harmon Quest show. Gotcha. Yeah, and like yeah, so that's and I've never played Dungeons and Dragons myself. Although I totally would have if I had ever been invited by anybody. Would be like hell yeah. Yeah, well, we've talked about. I mean, we we probably will end up playing at some yeah. point. I talked about like we could try and play a little bit. And, it's gonna be great. So, yeah. Um. So. Uh, where was I? Oh, so the right. So the carrot cake. So the carrot cake. So this guy, um, I can't. Unfortunately, I can't remember his name. But his YouTube channel is Dungeon Masterpiece, and um, I think it's it's well done. But anyway, that's beside the point. He makes this great analogy yeah. of carrot cake, um, but he's referring to this. Um, this kind of so in Dungeons and Dragons, there's the history of Dungeons and Dragons is uh, long and sorted, and there's various people and the company, the original company that was formed and then went out of business, but the sort of license was bought up by Wizards of the Coast. Wizards of the Coast, I believe. That sounds right. Um, yeah, Wizards of the Coast, uh, who also uh, who who are now currently owned by Hasbro. Um, they were, I think they were acquired in 1999, um, Uh but they're kind of a subsidy of, of Hasbro and they, their kind of other big claim to fame is probably Magic the Gathering, which is like a a collectible card game. Um, that's quite popular. Um, anyway, they, uh, they kind of have managed the Dungeons and Dragons, um, role-playing, uh, compendium i mean i it's not the the license basically like everything about like the um the different versions of the rule sets and so on and um if it's basically what dungeons and dragons is is a role-playing game it's a tabletop role-playing game you typically pay play with like pencil and paper and there are kind of a core rule set um, and the the basic play is like one person in Dungeons and Dragons, they're called the Dungeon Master or the DM, but in more generic terms, they're kind of the referee or the 
game master. Um, they play all, they kind of construct and manage the root, the world, and then players play individual characters typically. Um, mm -hmm. So the kind of style of play is like one person is responsible for the sort of sandbox arena in which everybody gets to play and uh, and then individual players who show up to the table, whether it's the actual table or not, um, usually create characters and then play those characters in that kind of imagined world um, in the theater of the mind, right? Yeah. So um, Dungeons and Dragons is one of the earliest versions of this. It's very fantasy heavy. Um, it doesn't have a lot of science fiction. It's typically sort of magic wizards and warriors kind of environment um and the history of it like there's been versions um kind of the original version was published in 1974 which was like this very sort of um haphazard reimagining of tabletop war games which were, mm, were like risk uh yeah but no more like um like miniatures like people reenacting like World War One, World War Two, oh. like replaying battles, like creating troops, having rules for how the battle plays out, like on a tabletop, people getting really into the miniatures, um, you know, creating troops and things like that. And and so um the the designers, this guy Gary Gygax and this guy Dave Arneson sort of came up with the this set of rules for playing a similar game, but with fantasy characters instead. And so um so that eventually evolved into Dungeons and Dragons, which was originally released in 1974. Um, a few years later, they kind of came out with the basic set and then um, sort of various editions come around. And by 2003 or 2000, there's a third edition that was kind of the modern. So third edition is when um, Wizards of the Coast basically took over because TSR, um, the form, the company that Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson created, um, to publish uh, um, Dungeons and Dragons basically went under and um, Wizards of the Coast kind of bought it up and they became the the new owners as of now. And so from about 1997 until present, they've been advancing editions. And so every edition, there's like reworking of the rules. Um, third edition was pretty exciting because it was like, you know, basically the second edition came out in about, um uh I think about 1980-89-90 was like kind of when that was like really kind of hitting the shelves um okay. and then uh and so for about 10 years nothing had changed and then the company went out of business and then Wizards of the Coast was like fuck that here's a new edition even better and then 4th edition came out in 2008 and then 2014 5th edition came out and that's what most people that's the modern edition that people play um and so there's currently what's going on is there's a new edition coming out that is currently under the working name of D&D &D or 1D&D &D, and Ooh. there's lots of you know, lots of speculation about changes of rules and, and like styles of play and all of this stuff. And, and I don't really need to get into that other than um, for the last couple of years, I think maybe even like six or seven years, maybe even longer, there's been kind of this um, movement to revisit and establish like the original rule set or the kind of classic D&D &D as a as a form of play that people want to do. And so it typically goes under the, like the um, heading of OSR, which is, um, uh, fuck, what's it called? Um, 
so OSR is like old school renaissance, renaissance um, old or renaissance. School. Yeah. Yeah. So there are a couple of different companies or people who've um, put forth uh, these kind of things. One of the most um, uh, prevalent ones that I'm familiar with is old school. Uh, shit. What's it called? Um, old school essentials. Okay. And. Um, they essentially what they did is they they did a couple of cool things. One is that they basically collected all of the classic rules. And so to, in the old books, like the rules were kind of all over the place. Like there's what I would describe as lore. So like this idea of like, oh, this is a description of the world. Like there mm-hmm. are, you know, the kind of the way Lord of the Rings like describes this, um, you know, J.R. or or uh, J.R. Tolkien, like yeah. Tolkien, has this like massive world, and in each one of his books, he like fills out huge amounts of lore, like you know how the world works, like the different interactions, these stories. Yeah. So yeah, lots of background details. Yeah, background details and stuff. And so, um, the original books are pretty. They're like pamphlets. Like they're maybe like you know thirty pages each or something like that. There's like three of them, um, and they're small. They're like you know, eight by six by eight or something like that. Um, there, the, the information is there is like pretty, pretty sparse and like, you know, organized from the point of view of like, we already expect you to come from tabletop wargaming. So a lot of these rules are sort of at like unofficially adjunct to that. So we don't really have like a lot of like play testing, user testing in the sense that we don't know what like someone who's completely unfamiliar, like what information they would need. So, Mm-hmm. So these books are kind of organized sort of haphazardly. And so what these OSE, OSR, the OSR movement has been kind of like a reimagining or recollection of the rules, the old school essentials in particular, um, having read it, I have not played it, but I've read through the rules and they've, they've collected all of these rules, reorganized them for like a sort of a modern day. They've offered um, more detail and like re like reworking of some of the rules to make them all work together more cohesively. Mm. Um, so, but, but the reason for this is that the, um, the old rules were harder, like the game. Oh, so harder in the sense that, um, hmm. like fifth edition dungeons and dragons is very much, um, safe in the sense that you create characters that are easy to hold on to. They're not, there's not a lot of things that are going to necessarily kill them in a sort of standard environment um, of play, like the dungeon master, as long as they follow kind of the guidelines for creating adventures, um, the characters who are at appropriate level and skill set can be played in a way that doesn't have a lot of like dire consequences. Mm -hmm. Old school D and D was much more like, you know, we might play a session and it's like, that's the end of the campaign. Cause everybody died. Like we just didn't yeah. make it very far. Um, what did you call it? Murder hobos. Oh yeah. So hobo murder. Uh, yeah. Uh, murder hobos or hobo murderism um, or murder hoboism. Murder hoboism. Yeah. So Dungeons and Dragons has long suffered with this issue of um, the core game mechanics basically promote a kind of play that is murder murder hoboism, which is to say you play a murderer who goes around and kills shit and you don't, you, you know, the hobo lifestyle of like never needing a place to live because you just... It, it it's irrelevant. There's not a lot of like game mechanic and role playing that encourages sort of 
you know, domestic lifestyle or even having <laughs> like a location or locale, nor is there a lot of reward for anything that isn't basically killing a monster or killing right. some other creature. And so that's <laughs> where that, that problem arises. Um, it's, you know, is it a problem? I don't know. It's a, it's a game. I mean, there's plenty of video games that are essentially this, like most like, you know, AAA titles are basically like grab a gun and shoot shit until the end of the game. And then the game's over. There are not a lot of games that are like, you know, shoot shit occasionally, but mostly be focused on like, you know, are my fucking, is my garden growing and did I get the right drapes I wanted or whatever, or, you know, some other entirely in between thing of like, I'm going to go live this other life. But there are there are good games out there. I'm not saying they don't exist, yeah. but the AAA titles are very focused on that sort of like hyper murder hoboism, right? It's like, <laughs> you know, it's irrelevant that your character that you're playing has a house or a life or anything else. The only thing that matters is like how much and how gnarly can you kill shit? Um, so, <laughs> God. so from a, like a design perspective, like I don't know, you know, from a, whether that's fun or not is, not up to me like i what i enjoy um is not i i you know as i get older especially i'm like i don't need the adrenaline rush of that and playing dungeons and dragons is certainly more fun because there's opportunity to have social interactions with friends and then also yeah. to role play interesting ideas um and have a fantasy setting that's great so anyway but murder hoboism, but mur murder hoboism. so <laughs> the question is why the fuck this is a long rant ned what the fuck is carrot cake got to do with this or design or anything like that good question so um the the analogy uh now that i've mentioned that there's this like old school re renaissance or like old school revival this idea of like how the fuck do we get back to a version of Dungeons and Dragons that those of us who remember playing and enjoying, how can we like recapture that? So um, one would argue that there's actually lots of ways of doing this, but one of the ways is that people have put together these sort of haphazard companies. And I think these are mostly publishing companies, these amazing works of love, like first of all, the fact that the old school essentials, you can hundred percent free download all of their content. Mm -hmm. for free in a PDF format. We could play today. Anything you buy from them is like, oh, I want a hardback published book. That's yeah. great. You can you can buy that, um, but you don't need it. Uh, and I, that, I think that's fucking great in so many levels because it makes, um, it makes the game way more approachable and, you know, people can like get into it right away. You don't need your players to also invest. One of the problems with Dungeons and Dragons, I think, is that it's hard to get into because um, like just the player's handbook. So if you're just going to be a player and potentially you would like arm yourself with like understanding the player rules um, can be like thirty five or forty dollars. Now you can get a book, I think, a little cheaper used. But again, um, the you know, the entry level is like there's a cost per person, right? Like it's not uh -huh. just um, now that said. You can get around that. You can, you know, borrow a book from somebody. There are, I think, um, I think Wizards of the Coast offers some basic online free resources if you're just okay. going to play a session. So it's not completely inaccessible. They've learned a lot from that. Um, but uh, anyway, carrot cake. So old school revival. That's going on. The analogy I think is great, which he says that this. So what he's saying is the OSR, as in the collection of old school rules or the old school re re renaissance movement, um, is not the carrot cake you remember. So, and what he means by that is if we look at 
sort of the history of carrot cake, like where it came from, um, which is disputed, which is fair, um, which again, I think it makes this analogy even better. Uh, like uh-huh. the origin of Dungeons and Dragons is co- this constant fucking upheaval of like minute debate about who did what and what's going <laughs> yeah. on and where, you know. Um, but anyway, so according to <laughs> the inward facing circle of Dungeons the, yeah, and Dragons. Yeah, exactly. So the, um, the deal with carrot cake is that uh, essentially, according to Wikipedia, as of December 1st, uh, 2022, um, the origins of carrot cake are disputed, but published in 1591, there is an English recipe for putting in a carrot root um, that is essentially a stuffed carrot with meat, but it includes many elements common to the modern dessert, shortening, cream, eggs, raisins, sweetener, dates and Mm. sugar, spices, clove and mace, scrape. That sounds pretty convincing. Yeah, yeah. Scraped carrot and breadcrumbs in place of flour. Um, Yeah. So many historians believe carrot cake originated from such carrot puddings eaten by Europeans in the Middle Ages when sugar and sweeteners were expensive and many people where uh, and sweeteners were expensive and many people used carrots as a substitute for sugar. So mm. that is kind of his analogy, which is to say that, you know, the carrot cake of old is not nearly as sweet and like delectable as uh-huh. the carrot cake that you're used to today. And it's a great analogy for um this sort of renaissance of of Dungeons and Dragons rules, like pulling, you know, collating and collecting the rules of old and putting them in a new modern format. Um, they are the his argument is they're better, right? Like this uh-huh. is a better version of what you're used to, you know, what you remember. Um, yeah, I always make the argument that uh, like anytime. Um, the group that I'm with, like we discuss, you know, people are discussing like the new upcoming changes to the ne- next edition or even changes from previous editions that we played into fifth edition, etc. My argument is always like the problem is they've moved away from what I always thought of as traditional Dungeons and Dragons gameplay, which was that you spend an inordinate amount of time steeping yourself or steeped in reading these source material books that are often thick and obtuse and like read like (laughs) textbooks except they have this like fantasy backdrop right so you're reading this like entirely fictional data set and like you're working through your mind trying to work out like what this means and all of that's kind of immaterial because when you show up on game day to play a session now you have to argue with your dungeon master about how the rules work and so really for me when I was a kid most of gameplay always seemed to be spending way more time excited about like some character concept I wanted to play and mm-hmm. then showing up and having that like having to debate that spending most of the game session debating that with other people at the table about whether that would work or whether my interpretation of the rules are correct and oh then reading more through documentation or the classic is spending an entire session creating characters like having somebody be like hey like you know come over and play D and all you actually did was spend most of your time playing a, creating a character but not actually getting to play the character and so my my argument is always like everything they've done in Dungeons and Dragons has eroded away from the core concept of gameplay, which is this sort of idea of like research and debate and has nothing to do with role play. <laughs> oh my God. But um, yeah. I mean, obviously I'm being facetious, right? Like the- That's not canon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so um, a- anyway, uh, I thought the carrot cake thing was cool. 
Um, yeah. I thought it was a good analogy and I had not really heard about that, but I thought it was a very good kind of way of like explaining like the, the new, the new rule sets that are the old rules that are being transformed into new rules. Um, things yeah. like that. So I like the cake analogy. Yeah, no, I think anytime you can make a cake analogy is a great, great place. Yeah, to Yeah, anytime from. cake is involved, period. Is oh, right. So to top it all off, I did. Um, I walked down to my local coffee shop. There's uh, this place called Twigs, which is fantastic here in yes. in University Heights in San Diego, and um, they have great carrot cake. And so I had I got myself a piece of carrot cake. Nice. Yes. Great job. Good job. Go team. I really, really like carrot cake. Uh, are you familiar or like are you um, used to carrot cakes with nuts in them? I am. Yep. I'm yeah. I'm familiar with it. Is it walnuts in carrot cake? Uh, can be. Mm-hmm. Yep. Walnuts, raisins. I mean, they're typically um, like bran. There's lots of different kinds of... Bran? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, my grandma makes a mean carrot cake, but I don't yeah. know what's in it. They, I didn't know carrot cakes had bran in them. Like bran muffins? Yeah. Yeah, oh. potentially. Um, not always. I'm just saying some do. Like uh, typically um, carrots and walnuts and flour is kind of classic with sugar, cinnamon, vanilla, salt, you know, various spices, like sort of mm-hmm. allspice depending. Um mm-hmm. But I've certainly had carrot cake that are that are kind of like bran muffins with fortified with carrot kind of. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's you know there's so many different kinds of. Uh, uh, there's a website called carrot carrotcakelady dot com. <laughs> Is this like the sort of thing where my obsession with reiterating on the theme of banana pudding is happening but in carrot cake format i maybe i i mean i'm just now kind of clicking on this i don't i'm not prepared to answer that question (laughs) um yeah but uh i you know one thing to kind of bring it back to our roots of art and design i really like the color palette of traditional carrot cakes oh me too it's so appetizing it's so appetizing there's that really high contrast between the sort of cream white a sort of off-white frosting, mm-hmm. the the very brown, mottled brown sort of cake content. Yeah. And then usually you have that sort of green and, and orange carrot motif on top for uh, yes. for decoration. Oh, so oh fucking great. Yeah. Yeah. And it's usually three layers, right? It's a three-layer cake? Yeah. Um, I mean, the one that I had uh, today was... I, I actually the one I had today was four layers. There were three. There were three cream cheese icing layers inside. Whoa. Yeah, it was quite good. Um, yeah. That's amazing. Yep. Yeah, my grandma always used to make that um, as the alternative to like she would make pecan pies. Yeah. And carrot cake and what else? Um, she would make other pies too. She made a really good pumpkin pie. It yeah. wasn't too sweet. Huh. I do like pumpkin pie. I think I like sweet potato pie a little bit better. But yeah. I, but I love pumpkin pie. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't turn either of them down. Right. Right. I. You know what pie? I. I really just never liked that much. Even as a kid, when it was like you could like I could take like you know four cups of sugar in a sitting and then like ask yeah. for more. Um, right. <laughs> was uh pecan pie, pecan so pie, 
pecan pie. It's so good, but it's so sweet. It's literally just like corn syrup and pecans. Is that really all it is? Oh yeah. Corn syrup? Yeah. I mean all the all the pecan pies I've ever had are corn syrup. Ooh, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah. That makes me not like them as much. Uh yeah. I mean it's basically um like here's a classic recipe. Hold on, let me find it. Um yeah, so a cup of light corn syrup, half a cup of brown sugar, one tablespoon of molasses. Oh my god. Some eggs, salt, vanilla extract, wow. two cups of pecans. Yeah. This yeah. is insane. I have to corroborate with somebody here. Did you know that there's corn syrup in pecan pie? Um, maybe. I don't know. That's nuts. He can't eat pecan pie. <laughs> right, that's fair. Because of the pecans. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, I mean, it's fucking good. But um, like here's another rep recipe that has less corn syrup. It's a one and a three, thir three quarter cups of white sugar, quarter uh -huh. cup of dark corn syrup. Oh, God. Um, but that other one just had like brown sugar and molasses. Like it's essentially you just it's just so sugary. Um, yeah. I yeah. didn't realize that because... <laughs> I, maybe this is insane, but I don't think of that as like a particularly overwhelmingly sweet pie. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, you know, that's understandable. Maybe you've just had the luck of like having ones that aren't. aren't don't like, you think that like cherry pies or blueberry pies or strawberry pies are sweeter? No. To me. Oh, really? To me, the, to me, the pecan pie is the sugar pie. Like it's just so much. It's mm. like. It's sugar that's been, you know, had some pecans adulter adulterated with pecans. Like it's yeah. not, um, yeah, it's basically every recipe has at least some form of corn syrup. Um, here's one that has three quarter cup of light corn syrup and light brown mm -hmm. sugar. One in a, I mean, it's basically like two and a half cups of sugar. Every recipe that I've found and wow. some, in some like, form or other whether it's corn syrup or it's brown sugar or it's molasses or do you like boston cream pie sure yeah yeah so i mean i like pie. pecan pie in the sense that like it tastes good i just yeah I, even as a kid i just remember it being like holy fuck this is like it's so sweet that it's like it like bottoms out and so i'm just like oh this is just maximum sweet like i don't taste i don't even think i'm tasting the full extent of how sweet this is yeah Anyway, yeah, sorry, you were saying um, uh, Boston uh, cream pie. Yeah, it's funny to me that they call it that because it's a cake. <laughs> like, it's not a pie. It doesn't have a pie shell or crust. It's not like... Right. It's not m made in a pie tin. Like, right. It's not, a, it's not a pie, but it's my favorite. Oh, it's so good. I mean, it's a good balance of that, like, sort of chocolate and creamy pudding and it's spongy cake. It's almost like cake. a giant donut. Yeah. It's, a, yeah. it's a, like a cream donut, a cream filled donut. I love custard. I love anything with custard. Oh, custard is great. Yeah. I know. It's just delightful. Yep. And I like, um, who were we just talking about this with the other day? Maybe it was Lauren. We were talking about how I really enjoy the raisin sour cream pie. Have you ever had that? No. Ooh, it's really good. It's a cream pie. Yeah. Um, And it's kind of like a... It has kind of like the consistency of like a French silk pie or something like that. But it's like this sour cream base that's mixed with raisins. And it's like, 
I don't think it's super, super popular with people, but oh my God, I love it. I I bet, I think we like kind of the same things. Do you like, in carrot cake, I like the best frosting is that like cream cheese sort of. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think we kind of like the same things. Like that sour, like something that's made with sour cream where it's like you can really taste the character of the sour cream like in the in the cake or whatever it is. Fucking amazing. It sounds awesome. Mm, yeah. Um. Um. I guess Boston cream pie came from a hotel, the Parker House Hotel in Boston. Oh, I didn't know that. That's interesting. In 1856 by Armenian French chef, Monsieur Sanzian. That's awesome. Yeah. I uh, I did not know the origins of Boston cream pie, but I looked it up and it came from Wikipedia today. <laughs> oh, interesting. It's the official dessert of Massachusetts. Really? It is. I wonder what the official dessert of Minnesota is. That's a good question. Ooh. Minneapolis. <laughs> I'm assuming it's by city. Let's see. I'm going to look it up. So while you're talking about that, I just was going to say, I think it's really interesting. Um, color. Cake. You don't have one. Cake. Cake color palettes are um, really varied and wild, like wildly different. Uh, but that's a, we could probably do a whole podcast on like classic, like I imagine that some color palettes are so recognized, like some cakes are so recognizable that you, if you were just offered the color palette, you would be able to like point it out, you know, like cherry pie. Yeah. Like cakes and desserts, right? Like, like super minimal design posters. Like, what yeah. Pie is this? Yeah. Like what pie is this? Yeah. Like carrot cake, right? Like it's that, yeah. like that orange, oh, green, yeah. cream and brown, right? Like, yep. um, see, we could put a whole portfolio of color palettes together and just name them after foods. Boston cream pie is yeah. another really classic to my mind because you've color got, combo. yeah, that like, beautiful buttery brown color and then like the custard color next to it mm -hmm. i love brown with any pastel color yeah yeah it's a pretty fantastic combination yep mm -hmm. like we gotta we gotta get our daily or colors of the week we do we again. do because one of our fans um texted me and she was like hey i just finished listening to your thanksgiving special she was really happy that it wasn't actually about steamed hams Oh, good. But in fact, it was about the steamed hams art movement. Yeah. Um, I, I, anyway, she, um, but she's like, I miss the colors of the day. She's like, her favorite thing was imagining what the colors were and then later going and looking to see what they were nice. to see how close she was to it. Oh, that's a great comparison. Yeah. So um, we definitely need to bring that back. And okay. that's on me. I can definitely work on that. Um, Yes. Great. I'm going to crack the whip over your head. I have I have some ideas about um cuz like right now the color it was just two colors like it was just sort of generates two colors that we can use for colors of the day. Um but I had some ideas about um maybe coming up with having our research department come up with like a full color palette like three or four colors. Yes. Um and then having, you know, and then naming that color palette so you can have a color palette of the day. Yes, I think this is so great. Yeah, yeah. Like it just comes pre-packaged. Like, need a color palette? Here's your color palette of the day. Right, right. Yep. Uh, this is such a great project idea. I'm making notes of this. Yeah, fantastic. Um, um, strawberry shortcake. There's a classic color combination ooh. that I bet people would. 
you know what else is fucking confetti angel food cake yes yeah Ooh, yep. i gotta write those down color combos for our future um i yeah it would be really fun to do like whole books of color palettes and like it, oh, so great. I, it would be so great to do them by room too like here's your living room color palettes here's your kitchen color palettes mm-hmm. i'm especially interested in the kitchen color palettes i um just to kind of throw a wrench in that a little bit or as we like to uh to wrench ratchet it up a little bit i also like the idea of um like applying the color palettes to things that that are not traditionally sort of i i'm trying to think of a good example but like when you said rooms i was like yeah that makes sense that's very like this is a very adult book i was like how can we make this like more <laughs> absurd um like fighter jets or like you know what i mean like <laughs> yeah you <laughs> Here's the paint job uh, color palette for your mom's minivan if you steal it and don't tell her where you took it. <laughs> right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh. Yeah. And we should we should coordinate with Chris on this because I think he would enjoy this kind of thing. Yes, um, I'm sure he would. Our yeah. dear graphic design friend. Yeah. And the person with the most graphic design skills out of the three of us. You know who else is a graphic designer who we really haven't done anything with that we probably who? should? Um, she lives in, uh, well, you know, we, she sent us fortune cookies. I know I don't usually mention oh. people's names, but she sent us yeah. fortune cookies because I know she listens. And I definitely, right. um, if you're listening, we think of you and we're yes. not excluding you. Um, and we'd actually <laughs> love to do, uh, yeah, you're you're absolutely like invited to uh Come make weird you can stuff. Come with make us. weird shit with us. Yes. <laughs> um, so, um, and I, her uh, shit's pretty cool. Like, I anyway. Sorry, we don't need to get into that. Well, I we need to. I need to talk to her first about like whether it's okay to like share her her name and stuff on the podcast. Yeah. So, um, yeah. Uh, my my little microphone uh, cover. It's yes, coming back into shape. I could see that. When I, yes. <laughs> when I pulled it out of the box, it looked very sad. And yes, yes. <laughs> see that you store there. that more properly from now okay, on. Put it on the mic stand. Yeah. Leave it in. That's how I leave mine. I just leave mine all clipped into the. the but I never stand. use a mic stand because it hurts my neck. Well, no, I know, but when just like have it hold it. Oh. Like okay. you take it out. You take it out of the clip when you want to use it. I'm just saying it be on the mic stand when you when you're not using it. <laughs> Yeah. So today I inherited some succulent plants from my neighbor. Yes. I've never really tried to grow succulents. So, I mean, I grow aloes like nobody's business, but sure. other succulents, not so much. And so I'm hoping that I don't destroy them. Yeah. Do you have any advice for growing succulents? Um, typically, my advice for growing succulents is uh, just never water them until you're like, oh, that looks like it needs some water and then give it some water. Okay. That's- um yeah (laughs) yeah like typically my experience with succulents are that um i now i don't know about growing them where it freezes like i know about growing them in in southern california um and typically where where they just grow everywhere all the time yeah like i have a lucky jade plant that um that lives in a big pot by my by the foot of my stairs coming up to my apartment and Mm -hmm. um i never i never water it except for when i do which is like once in a blue moon like maybe six months every six months 
Maybe that possum that pooped on your stairs would pee in the plant for it. It's certainly possible. Um, but I can tell when it needs water because it just starts to look really wrinkly. Oh. And then I'm like, oh, it needs some water. Like it's looking a little dry. But they don't, um, you know, they're, they, I want to say designed, but they're not designed. They evolved to um, survive in that kind of environment with like mm-hmm. low water, right? So. Um, did you know there's native cactuses in Minnesota? I did not know that. That's interesting. Yeah. Apparently, they don't care that it gets cold. Yeah. Well, I know. I mean, that kind of makes sense to me because I know um, around here in the high desert, like it, it routinely gets below freezing. So mm-hmm. I, it does make sense to me that the that species of cactus were are able to weather that. It's quite know, miraculous. That weather. Yeah. To be able to y- yeah. take that big of a swing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, because it's pretty extreme. I mean, it's like like desert, you know, during the day and the full sun. The summer just like unbearably hot, huge amounts of solar radiation or, you know, not necessarily like, but, you know, like UV radiation and like all Mm -hmm. of the, I just mean like electromagnetic spectrum radiation, not necessarily like radioactive nuclear. (laughs) Ionizing radiation. Yeah, ionize. Thank you. Um, But, but like, you know, potentially very harsh solar environment. Yeah during the day and then at night just like right back down to freezing because there's nothing to hold the heat there's Mm -hmm. nothing there to like you know be a big heat sink it's just a bunch of fucking silica and some like you know the occasional usually here i think we kind of have like monsoon season where it's like you know there'll be like one major dumping of rain and then no water for the rest of the year right which is just insane it it snowed eight what the heck it snowed eight inches here the other day oh really yeah wow they were like somewhere between two and six and then damon's like i think it's gonna be way more than that and i was like really and then it ended up being eight (laughs) (laughs) i don't know if that's way more but that's definitely more yeah i mean that's quite a bit more i mean it's not it's you know what 25 percent more or something like that yeah it's a bit more yeah it was enough that they called a snow emergency so i didn't have to shovel the alleyway they came and plowed it instead which is great Uh uh-huh because it is no fun to shovel a whole alleyway. Yeah, no, that's yeah, that's a lot of eight inches. That's a that's a fucking hefty amount of snow to shovel. It is, but it wasn't very wet snow when it came down. Oh, so, that's nice. so it moved, it's moved it's lighter, quick. it's yeah. powdery. Yeah, um, which is great because the heavy wet snow is the stuff that like gives people heart attacks, like my uncle. Uh huh. I still love that story. <laughs> It's just like you can just appreciate certain things about people. Like uh-huh. Came in from came in from shoveling too uh-huh. hard. Yes. Grabbed his diet Pepsi uh-huh. and his cigar, and then like collapsed, and he was found dead with next to his Pepsi and his cigar. Ah, oh, so it's so ridiculous. It's, it is so ridiculous. It's so perfect though. It's like a cartoon yeah. almost. Like <laughs> so typical. He was never without a diet Pepsi and a cigar. Oh, that's so funny. <laughs> oh god that's just so jimmy um yeah oh what else i i i can't remember if we talked about this the last time on the podcast but i cleaned my bee cocoons and i got like 80 yeah. or 90 of them yeah that's so awesome so yeah. these are um wood carver bees no they are mason bees. mason bees right Right. And I we also have wool carter bees in the yard, but they're totally native. Like we don't they show up when they show right. up. Right. And I, gotcha. I don't know how they live and I don't know how to foster them. I would if I knew how, but right. I don't. 
Um, they're very territorial. So I don't think they would probably appreciate a lot of human intervention. Right, right. Whereas the mason bees, like they basically go into cocoons and then you can, or they. Yeah. And they're really friendly. Like you can handle them. Interesting. You can hold them. Like if you yeah. go out in the early morning, they come out of their little nesting holes to warm up in the sun so that their body temperature is high enough that they can fly. Uh-huh. And uh, you can pick them up and they'll warm up on your hands before they take off. Oh, that's so interesting. They're very sweet. And they don't have stingers. Oh, really? No, they don't need them because they're solitary. So there's no hive to defend and no honey. Yeah. Interesting. No, it's a waste of evolutionary energy. To Yeah. Like, yeah develop a state sure sure that makes sense yeah so they um they're super friendly and the um the uh native leaf cutter bees that showed up in our yard took up residence in my in my bee houses also they just showed up and i didn't do anything to foster them like yeah. i mean i put out the nesting materials but i yeah i, I didn't intend for the leaf cutters because they're a little bit trickier to work with than the mason bees uh-huh. um they're a little bit finickier they they just have some qualities that make them uh less easy to work with and yeah. um so i didn't want to bite off more that i could chew and do mason bees and leaf cutter bees in the same summer right right this year, I'm confident that I could handle both. Gotcha. So you switch over. Like the mason bees come first. You put the cocoons out. They hatch. They lay their eggs. And then you harvest their nesting materials and bring them in and put them in a safe place until October. And you do that in like July. So from July to October, the mason bees are hibernating and done. Uh -huh. And in the place where their nesting materials used to be, you can put out stuff for leaf cutters and then the leaf cutters show up later in the late summer. Huh. Like they show up in like July. Yeah. After the mason bees are done. So they like it when it's really hot. And when I was reading about them, I just thought, oh, these sound more complicated than mason bees do. And their cocoons are a little different. Like whereas the mason bees have individual cells and they lay an egg and then the egg hatches into a larva and the larva eats all of the food that's in the little cell with it little walled off cell and then it turns into a cocoon and then it becomes a bee <clears throat> the leaf cutter bees aren't placed in a solitary little cell by themselves where they're protected they're placed one after another and they take a lot longer to develop into bees and they're rolled up in what looks kind of like a cigar interesting yeah. oh because so they right because it's a leaf that they yeah yeah so they wrap the baby bees like you would wrap tobacco in a cigar it's really cool so you when you harvest them what comes out of the reed is like this long intact like little patchworked roll of leaves with baby bees inside of it oh interesting yeah and so those i have in my basement in the window well so that they stay really cool yeah. But they're not in a fridge because the fridge is too humid for them and they will mold. Interesting. Like the the leaf material will mold and then they won't survive. Right, right. I mean, that so, kind of makes sense, sure. Yeah, it's like really fascinating. And one of the things that kind of drives me nuts is that like there is no really clear, succinct, single place where you can learn all the stuff you need to learn about all these bees. Like you kind of have to poke around and like, 
some reference material will tell you some things and another one will tell you another thing. Some of them tell you conflicting information. Of course they do. Of course they do. Of course. Like one of them's like, don't fucking touch your mason bee larva yeah. after they've been laid in there in the summertime because if you jostle them around, yeah. um, they may, they're like little weaklings in there. And if they fall off their pollen pile as a larva, they may not actually be able to climb back up on it again. And then they would just starve in their little cell, which is like so sad. So I was really paranoid about moving them. Yeah. And then I read in this other book written by a guy who owns Crown Bees, which is like kind of an industry leader in like Mason Bee retail. (laughs) It's kind of strange to say. Uh Anyway, this guy wrote a book about caring for Mason Bees and he runs this gigantic fucking Mason Bee business. Uh Uh-huh. And he says, no, 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 move the reeds and then rotate them 90 degrees from their horizontal position into an upright standing vertical position and wrap them in organza so nothing can get at them. (laughs) And I'm like, well, that is like literally the opposite advice of what this other resource says. Like, don't fucking touch them. You're going to kill them. And this guy's like, no, definitely touch them. In fact, turn them upside down and put them in a bag. (laughs) Right. So I don't really know what to do about that. I'm hoping that I'm hoping I didn't wait too long because temperature has everything to do with how fast they metabolize their stores of energy. Oh, sure. And yes. I, I, so the first mistake I made with the mason bees is that I put their house in a great position, except for the fact that it was a little unsheltered and they don't particularly like that. Ah, um, gotcha. And so they did, they did successfully nest. I mean, I, I had a bunch of mason bees and they laid like 90 fucking cocoons. So I was not a failure. It wasn't a total failure, but I think I can improve upon it. So I was a little nervous because I read after they they laid all these cocoons like, oh, you definitely want to put your house up in a sheltered area. And I'm like, well, fuck. Ours is like right out in the open on a post. Yeah. I wanted them to like, I don't know. I don't know what I thought. I didn't know. So <laughs> it's like I'm getting the subtitles after the film, right? The uh-huh. theme of 2022, uh-huh. the subtitles after the film. So I'm like, well, now I got to move these little bees because it was like <laughs> summer thunderstorms and stuff. And I was like, what if they get knocked down in high wind and then they're all going to die because of the impact? So I took the house down and that's when I read, oh my God, don't move the bees. And I was like, fuck. <laughs> and then I moved them. So then I put them in the house in the back hallway where it was like sheltered from the elements, but yeah. it was still like kind of cool because there's moving air and stuff, but not like refrigerator cold because they right, can't go right. in the fridge yet. They can't go in the fridge until like October. It's like, oh my God. And so I left them in the back hallway and then I was so trepidatious about opening them up and I was like, what if I open them up and all I find is like little larvae that starve because I knocked them off of their pollen. <laughs> so I was really like anxious about like finding that I had genocided all my bees again and uh-huh. I was like, oh, I don't want to do this. So I cracked open all of the little reeds and the, all the cocoons were intact and I was like, oh my gosh. So at least they made it to that stage. Yeah. yeah. Because I left them in a warm house. For an extra month before I put them in the fridge, yeah. I'm concerned that they metabolized a bunch of their stored fat and they might not mm. make it all the way to springtime when I need to put them out. Right, right. Like they may run through their energy resources before they have a chance to hatch, in which case they would just die. And well, the fucked up thing is if I put them out and they don't hatch, like if I end up with a lot of unhatched cocoons, I'm not going to know which of these things went wrong. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, clearly I didn't jostle them too much because they made it to the stage where they had really well-formed cocoons. So there's like, there's adult bees in there somewhere right now, like gestating. Yeah. So 
I mean, I, I, I don't know. I think w- one one could argue a couple of things, but I think the overriding theme I see here is that like this is a learning process, and you had some great success, which is you got them to form cocoons. Yeah, that's amazing. They liked they liked it enough to like put baby bees in there. So yeah, and if if you get to the point where like you have like a low yield next year, then you know more experimentation and and some tweaking is needed. I yeah. would be surprised if none of them made it out of that. Um, I think if none of them yeah. made it out, then probably you want to consider what you've done since they formed cocoons because like forming cocoons seems like that's in line yeah Yeah. it's like that's in line with their biology and what we expect to see based on our observations of them in the wild so great everything up to that point was working well for the most part i mean Mm -hmm. you know you're you're right like it's certainly possible that maybe they form cocoons but they're already doomed for failure because they've already burned through too much of their energy stores you know yeah. yeah but i mean I, I don't know like you you know this is like anything you're just gonna have to like you know keep copious notes and keep yeah. you know keep an eye on like what you did and how re- things resulted so yeah um, and I I was so nervous about them that I just was kind of like I treated them a little like f- I was a little fussy you know what I mean sure yes like now I'm not now I realize like basically you're not trying to like recreate optimal conditions or anything for them yeah. you're trying to just like put some shit out and if they like it they'll use it and you just let them do that right yeah i was gonna say like this is the same advice i have for growing succulents which is like mm-hmm. the less intervention you give the better yeah. off unless yeah. you know you're trying to keep them alive in an environment they're just not designed for suited or to, d- suited right? for not designed but you know evolved for yeah. right like right. if if they're kind of native and all you're really trying to do is give them a leg up or foster more of them existing where you are, then like really your approach should be like, what am I doing that's making it hard for them to be here versus like, what should I do to make it easier for them to be here? Yeah. You know, how do I, how do I dial back on all of it? Like, you know, do they need more flowers that I've trampled? I mean, I think you're doing lots for that, right? Like you're already kind of recreating a native environment where it's like, well, here it's like a nice concentration of food sources and things that, you know, would, would be available to them if there weren't just a fucking fuck ton of concrete and houses everywhere. (laughs) Right. Exactly. I'm planting like, man, I think I I mentioned it before, but I have over 150 different varieties of plants in my yard. So I have like a massive amount of biodiversity and some of them are just babies at this point, but they're all native plants. Like I really, aside from the fucking tulips, um, most of what I have in my yard is a plant, a prairie plant, like a native prairie like there's okay, cone sure. flowers and yeah. there's I'm thinking about planting something called a compass plant oh. which can grow to like 10 feet tall and it has these it looks very much like a sunflower uh-huh. but it's a perennial they can live a hundred fucking years really and they have a taproot that goes down like 10 or 15 feet or something like that so they're like really um beneficial from like a biodiversity standpoint because they're really long lasting and they provide a like a structure for birds to perch on and like um they're usually the tallest thing out on the prairie they're really cool i just need a place to put it and i'm not sure where to put it because it takes a lot of room and it's going to be there a long time (laughs) Uh uh-huh and i'm not sure um what the best option for that is i was tempted to put it out on the boulevard but i would have to figure out where the water main is so that i didn't put the plant on top of it because i bet it would drill right fucking through it yeah 
I go right through it. But yeah, so now I have, oh, and guess what I got today in the mail or in the email? I got an announcement that $333 of my requested grant reimbursement for planting a lot of these plants has come through. So I'm getting money. Yeah. Yeah. And then I'll just use that 333 bucks and turn around and buy more fucking (laughs) seeds and plants with it and plow it back into the yard and then maybe file for another grant. I don't know. It's really cool. It's called the Lawns to Legumes grants oh, yeah and yeah. so like i've turned my whole yard from grass uh, my thing keeps cutting out from grass over to um um like clover and yeah. um all kinds of stuff that bees want to eat i think i'm gonna put some alfalfa in the yard that's cool yeah those compass plants look cool i was just looking them up on the internet they're so neat i really like them i just yeah. i'm not sure yet where i would Put one. Yeah, the leaves are about four, like uh, from like, uh, oh, the leaves really vary in shape. They can be between an inch and a half to 23 inches long. They're really cool. It's such a neat plant. Yeah. Silphium um, laciniatum, uh, I think is what it's called. Yeah, they kind of look like, um, like sort of daisies on a stalk. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, yeah, they're really they're very like tall and spindly, but they're yeah. like super tough. Yeah, they look pretty cool. Um, they're up to three meters tall. Their their bitter resinous sap could be made into a chewing gum. Oh, interesting. Um, oh, Wikipedia says early settlers on the Great Plains could make their way in the dark by feeling the leaves. Interesting, because the um like the leaves like have a particular uh oh so they right the leaves grow um the vertical leaves facing east west have higher water use efficiency than horizontal or north south facing blades so basically um uh studies indicate that the sun's position in the early morning hours influence the twisting orientation so uh i'm working my way backwards uh here we go um (laughs) A newly emerging leaf grows in a random direction, but within two or three weeks, it twists on its uh, petiole. Yeah, petiole. Petiole. Clockwise or counterclockwise into a vertical position. Um, And so the sun, obviously its orientation towards the sun, causes these leaves to basically face east-west, which makes it... um, very easy to figure out mm-hmm. what direction uh what direction the sun or which, which direction is north right because all the leaves basically are pointing east west so hmm. that's um, really cool i didn't know that about it yeah i'm i'm assuming they're kind of i mean i wondered why they called it a compass plant but <laughs> yeah they're all the leaves are pointing this photo is not very good i was trying to see if i could like kind of figure out um but the leaves end up twisting around and pointing east or west. And then yeah. my assumption is that they kind of generally uh, present themselves facing facing sort of south. Okay. Um, the ver- so the vertical leaves facing east-west have higher water use efficiency. Oh, I see. Yes, I think you're right. About the orientation of them. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I just thought that was such a cool plant. Um and they attract birds and stuff. And I was like, oh, that's going to be kind of cool. I just, uh, there's a company here called um, Prairie Moon Nursery. And they 
have all kinds of like tall prairie plants and like I mean they have mixes and things like that but then they have individual plants that you can buy or seeds or whatever and Uh I've been getting a lot of stuff through them because it's native to Minnesota specifically and also they never use like any kind of chemicals when they grow their stuff so it's it's safe for all the wildlife right right um oh did you know about um like you have to clean out your um hummingbird feeder regularly yes I knew about this. Um, it's one of the reasons that I have not put out the hunting hummingbird feeders I have. Yeah. Most hummingbird feeders are really bad design because they they provide a lot of place for fungus to grow. Yeah. Um, and you, when you, so first of all, the food that you feed hummingbirds, you don't need to buy that fucking red dyed bullshit. You can just right. sugar and water. Simple yeah. syrup works amazing. Um, speaking of uses of corn syrup. Um, but you can, uh, but hummingbird feeders, like those ones that like have a jar that turns upside down and mm-hmm. feeds into like a plastic thing with yeah. fake flowers. The problem I have with those is that there's a huge amount of surface area in there that's really hard to clean that just gets mm-hmm. fungus growing in it. Mm-hmm. And so you can end up um, really like taxing the immune system of your hummingbirds because right. now they're eating. Uh, they're eating a food source that is like laden with Poisoning spores. Yeah. yeah. And it's not it's not that you're necessarily killing them. It's just that like you're putting a huge load on their immune system because now mm. every time they eat from the, the hummingbird feeder, their immune they're system has infected. to... F- yeah, they have to fight off all these like, you know, fungal spores, spores. that are just like yeah. overloading their system. So... That's terrible. Yeah. So you do have to clean them regularly. I have... Um, some hummingbird feeders that are really just like a cork and a spigot that sticks into a glass bottle. Oh. And I really, I liked that idea, but the problem is they leak. And oh. so it's like, I haven't found the magic, like the magic, like working in like situation um, yeah. where it's like a good mix of like, what I want is just like an all glass one that I can see in really clearly. So I can mm-hmm. see if there's any fungal growth and then it's really easy to clean. Um, and so I have not found that yet. Like all the commercial ones you buy are just like yeah. garbage. They're like garbage. so much, they're, they're, they're full of plastic and they pretend to look like flowers and the hummingbirds don't care. Right. They don't give a shit. They, they know they fly over and they're like, is there sugar in there? Yeah. I'm going to get at that. If there isn't, they don't care. They don't care that right. it looks like a flower that doesn't like trigger them the way I think people imagine. So, uh, yeah, I think you're right about that. Because well, I know because the like the most successful hummingbird feeder I have is one that's just like a glass bottle hung upside down with a like a like a rubber bung stuck in it and a little nipple pointing out and it it looks like a it looks like a um like a hamster feeder with except doesn't have a ball yeah exactly that's exactly what it looks like yeah so Hmm. well yeah adventures in wildlife and cake and cake indeed (laughs) well. Uh, we don't have colors of the day. No. Um, actually, um, we could do, uh, design snack. We could do design snack. Yes. Hold on one second. Um, let me just do, let me call the research department. Okay. Um, all right, here we go. So, um, Here's here's a little interesting idea. Um, so let's look at. Um, I don't know if we've done this one before, but uh, sound design is 
a field of study that um, it's basically the art and practice of creating soundtracks for, for, for a variety of needs. And so this is kind of, I'm cribbing from the- I love this. The Wikipedia article on sound design as of December 1st, 2022. Um, and most people are probably familiar with like, it's it just covers like everything from like filmmaking, television production, video game development, theater, sound recording and production, live performances, sound art, post-production, radio, new media, musical instruments. And things they don't mention, like podcasts, like this podcast, there is some yeah. consideration for the sound design of this podcast, which is yes. that um, when we first started recording, I spent some time um, coming up with an audio template for our publication of our podcast. So I have um, a couple of effects, essentially, that I apply to our audio sources. So like, Meg, you have a microphone and I have a microphone. We use the same microphones. Mm -hmm. um, so the sound design overall, how we reach the sound that we have comes from um, collecting the sound sources, people speaking the audio part, um, the vocal collection through the microphone. So the microphones we use are the Shure SM57s. We feed those into um, audio interfaces that uh, you have a Mutu M2, I believe, and I yeah. use a sound devices. Um, but either way, uh, I try to collect a fairly raw signal from you and from myself. We collect those raw audio files. I then put those audio files into a program called Reaper where I apply um, three different kind of effects. I, I apply a noise filter that um, basically tries to filter out um, any kind of like static or background noises. And I kind mm -hmm. of adjust that every time. Like I listen to a quiet section of um, the audio from each source and then I apply that filter or I that filter learns what the sort of background noise is and then it tries to like dial down that volume a little bit for that particular frequency. Sure. Um, and then um, the other two filters, I just have like a, a like an EQ filter, like high, mid and low um, to kind of make this sound, like to kind of correct for our voices so they sound more pleasing. And then I have a compressor, which brings basically the way we use a compressor is it brings the low, um, the, the quiet sounds, it raises them in volume and it also caps the loudest sounds. And so essentially what that means is that like if you're whispering, we can still, and when you're listening to this on the radio, or on the radio, on the radio, when you're listening to this on <laughs> on the podcast, like when you're when you're replaying this, what you should hear is you should be able to make out the quieter sound. It reduces the dynamic range, right? So it's not like when you whisper, it's like impossibly hard to hear. But right. also, like when somebody's shouting, it's like that also isn't too loud, and so it keeps everything in a more manageable range. Um, and so the reason that we did that we designed the sound that way is to make it easier to listen to um, on your ear, right? Like you're not straining to hear somebody who's softly spoken or you don't miss out on dialogue that maybe wasn't spoken directly into the microphone. Um, yeah. But also you're not like cringing every fucking time somebody gets like starts cackling with glee because some schadenfreude was discussed, right? Um, <laughs> that would be me. Yeah. So, uh, so that's kind of how the sound design is done for this podcast. And like our goal, and I'm always trying to refine this a little bit, is just to make it very listenable like not necessarily amazing it's not like radio lab where it's like this whole um you know speaking of sound design like a very good example oh gosh, of like yeah. over overly engineered in a good way like i you know but it's it's oftentimes like a like an audio treat right like you listen to mm -hmm. sound to um radio lab and it's like they capture 
lots of different sounds based on the story they're discussing and you get this like really amazing like audio journey that you go through and so i love that um yeah they're really good at it it is a lot of work like one of the reasons that we do our workflow the way we do is that you know it allows us to kind of have our meetings meet for our podcast discuss the things we're interested in and then not get too bogged down in the publication process which would be right if we were doing something like radio lab then i would need to probably spend hours of my time each episode like reworking the audio and making oh sure my god are, it would be a whole process it'd be like a full-time job yeah and it you know it might it like i think i would be interested in something like that but i don't know that I have the the time right now with all the other things that I've got going yeah, on. So I sure don't. And like at some point you like kind of plateaus. Like you can put in all this time, but like does anybody on the receiving end even understand that that's what you've done? Right. Like I I would say that if we were going to do something like that, um we would have to find a way to make it pay because Yeah. um because it take up so much time. Yeah, or or you know, if we were like independently wealthy, and I just suddenly was like, oh, this sounds like a fun thing I can do, then fuck yeah. Like yeah. you know, the way we treat this podcast, where it's like you know, if we could get our listeners back down to our one audience, that'd be great, right? Like, You're, right, like, just one, just the one, just and it's the a dog. And it's a dog. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, but seriously, uh, I mean, I really appreciate all of the people that do listen, and I do, I love hearing from them. Which I don't think we mentioned um, this episode. I try to remember to plug our email address if you want to contact us you can email dana our executive um she's the ceo chief executive yeah. of officer she's the boss she's the boss she also founded the the um the podcast yeah. uh she would love to hear from you if you email her d-a-n-a at fcbm.io so that's dana at fcbm.io send an email about your thoughts or ideas or just whatever the fuck is on your mind um we will get back to you and we'd love to hear from you. So totally. Or we won't get back to you. If you say as such, you're like, I don't want to hear from you, but here's my opinion. That's also fine. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, I think that's all I got. Anyway, we sound will, design. We is will like take a you thing. in any format that you come in. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you're listening um, and you want to engage more, there's options. So, uh, if anybody out there knows how to become a disembodied brain in a jar and still be able to like communicate and like get around and do stuff, I would love to know how that is because embodiment is sucky. Yeah. Yeah. Embodiment is rough for sure. Um, <laughs> I would argue that the brain in a jar thing would further compound some issues, oh. which is that you would probably become more dependent on society at large in some way. <sighs> That's a real drawback. Yeah. I mean, that's a that's a real toss up. Disembodiment or but also the trade off is dealing with more people. Right. Mm. Yeah. I feel betrayed by both. Uh huh. <laughs> both options are betrayals. Right. Oh, <laughs> uh, um, well, this was a good one. Yeah, it was a good one. Um, yeah. So carrot cake analogy. Um, yeah. Man, I guess I now I feel like I need to make a cake. Well, I already had my piece of carrot cake, and right. uh, coming into this podcast, I was already riding a bit of a sugar coma. Um, <laughs> it's pretty low energy. I've I've really come to understand and appreciate how much of my life I've spent like basically self medicating with sugar. Like it's yeah. really clear to me that I'm like, oh, 
that's how I really try to rein in a lot of my like ADHD symptoms, but it has its own downfall, right? Which is like, right. it creates a certain kind of lethargy and lethargy, lethargy. I think um, you can say it either way. Yeah. Uh, oh, yes. uh, speaking of that, um, the, the pff, words, the continuous glucose monitor that Damon got. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. We've realized after the fact that it comes with this nifty blue patch that goes over it to make it like <laughs> yes. smooth on your arms so you don't like catch it on the edges of things and rip it out of your body. Uh-huh. And he said once we put that blue thing over it, it didn't bother him anymore the way that it did. Like that oh, first night he had it yeah. on without the blue thing, he rolled over and was like, ow. Oh, yeah. With the blue thing on, I think it helps distribute the weight. Sure, yeah. And it doesn't press in. I so imagine much. like it moves all the skin together as well a little bit, yeah, so you don't get probably. any pulling around the injection right. site. Right. Um, so he said it doesn't bother him at all anymore. Yeah, I I definitely want to try that and get a sense of like what things like yeah. like what foods actually like send my blood sugar soaring. I can feel right. a lot of them for sure. Like I've I've been. Um, experimenting a little bit and just like mm-hmm. realizing it's like oh that like that particular food item that i like to eat like that that's for sure how i like spike my blood sugar like some right. things are obvious like i said like a gallon of ice cream a week is yes. like in a week is like oh yeah that's like every night just like blowing my blood sugar <laughs> sky high and then like passing out on the couch <laughs> like you know up to 600 and then down to like 80 yeah yeah exactly until i get like a huge insulin rush um <laughs> I did see that, uh, like I was reading about, um, the, the sort of the concept of like, uh, what's it called? Like the, the low carb diets and things like that. And, Mm -hmm. um, because a lot of the, a lot of the marketing around the continuous glucose monitor seems to be around this idea of like, um, well, I don't know if it's continuous glucose monitors, the ketosis diet, like the ketone diets. Oh, um, yeah. There's not any. Um, I'm trying to find the reference to it. Ketogenic diet. There's yeah. one that is the very low carbohydrate ketogenic diet. The problem is that there's. Um, where where did I see? So there's not there doesn't seem to be a strong, there doesn't seem to be strong evidence for, I forget what it's called, the theory of, let me find it, theory, well, it's not, um, it's basically like the, um, what were they calling it? Like the, the, um, like the insulin fat theory, like the idea that like insulin you become less sensitive to insulin the fatter you are yeah i mean there's correlations it's not but that's not what it is it's more like with the ketogenic diets like there's um uh no idea i'm trying to find um oh right yeah so uh the hypothesis appears to run counter to known so the hypothesis that um there's a carbohydrate insulin hypothesis in which carbohydrates are said to be uniquely fattening because they raise insulin levels and cause fat to accumulate unduly. Um, The hypothesis appears to run counter to known human biology whereby there is no good evidence of any such association between the actions of insulin, fat accumulation, and obesity. It's not to say that there's not strong correlations between Mm -hmm. like blood sugar necessarily. Mm -hmm. It's the, I think, 
I think what they're basically saying is like the carbohydrate insulin hypothesis of this idea of like, you know, getting fat because insulin levels are running rampant. Um, so oh. I don't know. Yeah, anyway. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, I don't know that much about it, but I've just kind of been reading about it because I was like, oh, maybe if I, you know, um, get a better handle on like my like my obsession with like managing for me though it's like i clearly there's a strong correlation for me and like my my seeking out sugar and my adhd like it's very much like if i don't have a lot of sugar and i keep that down my symptoms like are fucking nuts because i just become like like i operate at a level where i'm like i can't move fast enough to keep up with like the whims of my mind and i can't like keep it contained and the next thing i know like i just spent like you know three hundred dollars on like these obscure microphones on ebay because (laughs) i was like oh what i need is like a you know i need my our podcast to be able to be way more mobile and so i bought those like they're cool microphones um but like they're 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 did you buy them in a manic fit of sugar rage well with the lack of sugar right so like then i was like oh i'm alert i have a lot of energy and i have a lot of focus but i don't have any of the because i have adhd it's like i can't i don't get to direct that the way i'd like to and so the next thing i know it's like oh I've become obsessed with finding the smallest microphone that sounds like these SM57s that we use on the podcast right now. Um, And so doing a lot of research and finding a couple of candidates and then finding out that one of those candidates looks exactly like what I want, um, but then finding out it's discontinued, then looking on eBay and finding like one, I could buy one brand new, like new old stock, which I have like I have right here. Um, You know, the guy that I mean, it's great. Like, I didn't spend that much money on any individual one. But then I bought two of them because I was like, oh, well, if I do want them, they're like, you know, this one's a good deal. So I might as well get two of them, even oh, though boy. we really want four. And then in the end, I ended up buying this other one. That's not even that model that's actually still made, but very expensive. So then I went uh, not super expensive, but it's more than the SM 57s that we use. Uh-huh. And so I ended up buying four of those at a discount like i basically sniped them on ebay which i feel great about but at the end of the day it's like that doesn't fucking i don't need any of this shit right right and it's better it's better than like some of the things that i've done in my life where you know i've like kept i've not been able to keep like my my sort of symptoms in check right or been able to like direct it where it's like you know i mean i've bought boats and cars in my life like that's not right um you know so anyway um i don't know that's a little little we view gotta get into you my... we gotta figure this out uh yeah i mean one could argue that it's like that's i that's fine it's okay that, like you know i mean <laughs> it's, it's okay that i did these things like it's yeah. interesting and i may i will use them right like i you know it's not it's not that i'm like that these projects are necessarily bad it's just sort of like given Given the things that I want to have, like, that I've set out for myself, there none of these things are in alignment with that, right? Like, I've right. already got the podcast equipment working. Stuff. And right. there's nothing about it that needs to change. But why now am I, like, redoubling on something where it's, mm-hmm. like, there's other stuff in my life that needs way more work, you know? Yeah. I, like, I, I should know. be, you know, anyway. Uh, these things happen. Yeah. No, they do. They do. Absolutely. I do them, too. And I don't yeah. even have ADHD. <laughs> Sure. No, I mean, that's like, this is part of the problem of the ADHD, right? Is it's like you have that, um, the question, it's a matter of scale, right? Like the question is like, 
none of these things one could argue it's like oh that's normal lots of people go through those things it's like yeah but how much does it derail your life versus you know and that's where that like cutoff is right it's like yeah sure everybody has these like whims the problem is like are you doing it so much that you're not that it's paying interrupting rent. Your, yeah that you're paying <laughs> not paying rent or you're like yeah. you know it's shit like that so right. um yeah well anyway um well that was a fun podcast and uh thank you everybody for listening yeah thanks for listening yeah okay okay, okay bye okay bye we're calling the-